This is a special episode featuring a conversation between Drs. Tim Keller and Grace Utanto on the relevance of the work of Herman Baving for ministry in global cities. It was recorded during the joint open house between RTS Washington and RTS New York City on October 19, 2020. Joint open house between RTS Washington and RTS New York. Um, we're going to be discussing Bavink, Christian epistemology, and ministry in the city. And so tonight is going to be hosted by myself. My name is Scott Red. I'm the president here and professor of Old Testament at RTS Washington. And Jay Harvey, who's the executive director and uh, professor of pastoral theology at RTS in New York. But the people you came to hear from, um, uh, is Dr. Grace Sutanto, Professor of Systematic Theology here at RTS Washington and author of um, God and Knowledge, which is a study of Bavink and Christian, Christian epistemology, as well as the translator in uh, Christian Worldview, Bavink's uh, book, Christian Worldview. And we're thrilled to have you here. Hey, Gray, how are you doing? Great to be here, Scott. Privileged to be here. Great to have you. Um, and we're also joined uh, by Tim Keller. It's a special honor to have him in this conversation. Um, a lot of you have been following along with uh, events in his life, and we're thrilled that he's able to join us tonight. And Tim, you look good. Uh, we're praying for you. And a lot of people on this call I know are also praying for you. But for those of you who don't know him, and I can't imagine that's many on this call, um, Tim Keller does teach pastoral theology at RTS New York. He is the former pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. He's chairman and co-founder of Redeemer City to City and author of many books related to the topics that we're looking at tonight, including Centered Church, Reason for God, which I happen to be able to grab off my bookshelf right next to me, uh, and Making Sense of God. So it's a special honor to have uh, Dr. Keller on here with us tonight. And what, what we hope will happen here is that as we have this conversation talking about really, uh, you know, a late 20th, late 19th, early 20th century theologian and some of his contributions to the study of epistemology and knowledge, that as we take that and, and retrieve it, as it were, and bring it into the um, modern day, talking about what, what benefits, what, what fruit that we can glean from his work in the ministry that needs to take place and that we're called to do here in the modern city. Um, this is a conversation that will hopefully pique your interest. And if you're interested in pursuing more conversations like this, uh, both Jay and I would love to have you stay after into some of the breakout sessions. Um, we'll post some links for those breakout sessions uh, in the chat. And you can break out and come talk to him if you want to hear more about RTS New York or come talk to me if you want to hear more about RTS Washington. So with that said, let me hand it over to you, Jay. Hey, thank you so much, Scott. And uh, thank you for hosting this. Gray, thanks for signing on from Indonesia. Uh, we're hoping to be able to get you back in the country, uh, but really appreciate your faithfulness. And some of our RTS students were able to take a class with Grace Utanto, who's our newest professor of systematic theology, and thoroughly enjoyed it uh, this August. So uh, Gray will also be teaching uh, apologetics this spring, and uh, Tim will be teaching um, in January and in the spring as well. And so we just want to jump right in. And um, the topic of this webinar is the relevance of Herman Bavink for ministry in the global city. And, and people are wondering, you know, 
some people don't even know who, who Herman Bobbing is. Um, but given that this is also an open house for RTS New York City and DC, um, and given what I know to be the importance of theological education in New York for you, I thought it'd be helpful just to begin with um, a two-part question, uh, kind of backing into the topic um, uh, in this way. The first is, if you could just share a little bit about your vision for theological education that led you uh, to invite RTS to come into New York. We've been offering a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies since 2015. Um, just share a little bit about your vision and passion um, at this season of your, your ministry career for theological education in the city. And then after that, um, as, as you've encountered uh, new works that have come out about bobbing, because when we were in seminary, you know, um, there was that one volume translated by Hendrickson, I think, that was was all that I knew about Bob Inc. in seminary. I would love to hear about um, your own impression of the relevance of, of Bob Inc. for training people to do ministry in New York and in other global cities. Well, I, um, <clears throat> let me start with, well, thanks for inviting me to do this. Also, uh, let me start with that question about the uh, importance of ministry training in New York. One of the great things about RTS, and actually is one of the reasons why I did invite RTS, there were two reasons actually. One is that um, most seminaries have products, they have their degrees. And what they, when, they, when they go to the church, they go to new cities, they, they're really just looking for customers for their existing products. We wanna sell you our product. With RTS, we said, well, we want you to devise a, a degree program that actually fits New York and I knew that RTS was probably flexible enough to do that, even though it took a, took quite a quite a while. But most other schools just wouldn't have done it. They said, "Well, here's our here's our here's our products. Here are the, the degrees. Which one do you want?" And we said, "Well, we want one for New York, and you don't have one. We'd like you to create one." That was, the f and they said yes. So that was the first reason. The second reason is because RTS is so spread out into the different cities. Uh, what that means is a greater percentage of the people who are at RTS DC or at RTS New York City are from that city that you know in other words you uh, instead of RTS being a single place where everybody has to move for three or four years uh, you're you're able to do education in the context uh, and therefore the uh, both the theology and the practical theology ends up uh, not only being more contextual um, but it also uh, doesn't uproot people from their uh, from their uh, their communities and their churches. So without naming any other, uh, you know, I went to a different, I did not go to RTS and I never taught at RTS before. I taught at another school. But I just remember when I taught <clears throat> at a, res at a traditional residential seminary, I'd have, you know, I'd have a student from the barrio with, you know, in East Harlem and I'd have somebody from upstate New Hampshire and I'd have somebody from Seoul, Korea. And they're all sitting there and they they have all been uprooted. They come here they have very superficial relationships to the churches because it takes a long time to get those relationships. And, and their contexts are so different that they ask me such different questions. Um, okay, I'm not saying that's not, not possible to overcome, but you see how different it is when the people are actually in their, their context and you're, and you're teaching in the context. So I was very, very excited about RTS. I thought it would be flexible enough to give, give us a, a degree that fit us and then to deliver it to mo most, as you know, most uh, most of the students are still in context. And I think that's absolutely critical. And it's, it's a different model than the traditional one where you uproot from your life and 
you know, move across the world or across the, the country uh, and live there for three or four years. It can be a hot house, which is fine. You can get make a lot of new friends, but there are disadvantages to it. So I really love the model we've got. Tell us a little bit about the city ministry program because um, that's the city of city New York is such a support to me personally right. and students and just the training that you're delivering after our degree program. Right. Our, well, our, what, <clears throat> what we asked for was a, was a two year MA that did, that basically delivered all the academic work that an MDiv would, would deliver because we said we would like to give, we, we would like to create, um, we would like to teach practical theology here. Uh, it's, it's not uh, for credit. It's actually not, you don't get a degree with it, but because the city ministry program is a course of practical theology, it's like what you would get inside the MDiv, but probably twice as much of it. And it's taught by practitioners right here in the city. And so we felt like uh, it's a little bit of a new thing rather than at the MDiv, traditional MDiv in America that has both the practical and the academic stuff all in one three-year program, supposedly three years, it very often it's four. Uh, we, we like the idea of saying, We'll expand the, the practical theology. We'll make it more contextual. Uh, it won't be for it won't be a degree, but it will it will supplement the MA. And so when you come out, we think you're actually going to get every bit as much, if not more, than what you would have gotten in an MDiv, and it'd be more contextual. And um, so the city ministry program is a is a very full round of preaching, pastoring, evangelism, apologetics, leadership, um, everything you would get in practical theology, but a lot more than you could actually work into an MDiv. So we have a we have a certificate that you get, and so if you get your MA, then you get the certificate, and you uh, together you've got frankly more practical ministry than you would get with an MDiv, but no less academic work. Very good. So if you're on this call and you're in the New York area, we're going to be uh, taking questions about the MABS. I also work very closely with the folks at the City Ministry Program and can speak to that as well, and make sure you get connected with them if that's where your area of interest is. Of course, uh, RTS Washington will be speaking about. Um, the multiple degree programs that they offer. They offer our program, they offer or others there. It's a, it's a bigger a bigger campus. So, um, well, let's, let's um, we've covered that. Uh, and we really want to jump into what so many people have come onto the call for to learn more about Herman Bovink. And um, I, what we want to do is just toss this back to you again and then have Gray uh, jump in as a, as a, a new Bovink scholar. And really, um, you recently did an essay on uh, justice that was helpful to many. And you, you, you mentioned that essay that you found Bobbing's book on a worldview to be so helpful. Just speak a little bit about your encounter with Bobbing, how you find him so relevant to our, our moment today in terms of ministry and training people for ministry. Right. Okay. Now in, in this case, I'm going to be the lay person and Gray, okay. Gray's down here, by the way, and on my screen, Gray's right, right down there. Um, uh, he's the expert. So I'm going to talk like the pastor, which I am, not an expert in Bob Inc., but but how I saw Bob Inc. being a huge help to me in doing my ministry. Um, uh, here's something general and then something specific. Uh, Bob Inc., Kuiper, Van Til, the Dutch Calvinist approach to um, apologetics, uh, prolegomena in systematics, uh, if you start with Charles Hodge, who is a uh, Charles Hodge, and is a typical kind of British American systematic theology, and it starts with the proofs of God. So it basically starts by saying we can prove God to you, and he does. He starts with the proofs of God, and he tries to prove 
It says, now that I've proved God to you, now we'll get on and talk about what, that, what, what else the Bible says about God. It's a very rationalistic approach. What you had with people like Kuiper and with uh, Bavink, uh, this is my theory, and I'm talking, by the way, as a, you know, a white American guy with British background and all that, is um, they didn't trust common, they didn't trust common sense as much uh, as British people did. Scottish common sense realism, which is really behind a lot of American evangelicalism, sort of assumes that, you know, all rational people can just see the truth and, you know, Whereas I do think the Dutch and the Europeans had a, had a deeper understanding of how sin clouds the reason and how much presuppositions and cultural assumptions can actually distort the way in which we see things. They're just why I think they were wiser about that. Uh, and, and so what they will start with is not saying, here's the proofs for God. All of them would start their theology by saying, everybody, every, all knowledge starts with faith. No matter who you are, no matter how rational you think you are, in the beginning, you start with faith assumptions and you build your knowledge from there. You can rationally compare those worldviews, but you can't prove one of them at the bottom. So what's great about Kuiper and Bavink and, and the Dutch is they, they level the playing field. They don't say to the non-Christian, oh, we can be every bit as rational as you. Look, watch, we can prove it. They don't see the higher ground. Instead, they humbly say, look, what we're saying here is based on faith, but actually everything you are saying is based on faith too. And so they kind of humbly humble people in the beginning and they bring them down and say, we're all starting with faith. We can rationally compare our worldviews uh, in various ways, but we can't go proving them to start with. But here's what I thought was unique about Bobby. The Dutch Calvinists all say there's an antithesis between Christian and non-Christian thought because they start with, they have different starting points. But they also all say there's such a thing as common grace, that non-Christians have got the ability to grasp truth that, uh, frankly, it goes beyond their worldview. In other words, common grace is God's way of doing general revelation, revealing to the human heart and to the human conscience truth that they actually don't have the right to if they were consistent with their worldview, but they, but they have it anyway. I would say, and now here's where Gray can and maybe, you know, Gray being Asian might have a lot of trouble uh, disagreeing with this older white man over here, this older, this older man, but he needs to if he, if he disagrees with me. I saw Abraham Kuyper and people like that who are more famous, I think. They stress the antithesis, but when it comes to the way in which they talk to people, they really kind of underplay the common grace. I see them as a lot more ungenerous uh, I think Kuiper was more willing to say, if you're not regenerate, you really, you can't do science. You know, Christians alone have the right view of, uh, of art and of science. We're the only ones that know because everybody else starts in the wrong place. And so the Christian view is the right one. But what common grace does is to say, well, you know what, actually, there's lots and lots of non-Christian scientists and artists and all that have a tremendous amount of, of uh, insight and intuition that's true because God gave it to them directly. Bavink, I think, is more generous. Bavink, you can just tell in the way in which he writes, in the way in which he talks, he's willing to stress the antithesis, but at the same time come around and appreciate the truth that the others have. And I, um, I feel that that is a background to why I'm starting, when I start to read the way in which Bavink uh, analyzes what's happening in psychology and in, in the arts and in the government and that sort of thing, there's a generosity there, even as he's still willing to say, but there is an antithesis at the, at the bottom. 
So he's willing to, to, to go all the way down and say there is an antithesis and yet be generous. And I, I loved that. Um, and then here's the, here's the other thing. So for example, whereas a traditional worldview approach in America is um, the Christian worldview is right and you're wrong. What Bavink would say is because the Christian worldview starts with the Trinity, because the Christian worldview starts with, with, a, uh, with a God who is, is no more three than he is one and no more one than he is three, that he is equally one and equally three. That brings a nuance into the Christian worldview. So it's not simply that the Christian worldview is right and everybody else is wrong, though that's true. The Christian worldview has a richer understanding of reality. It can account for complexity and all other worldviews tend to reduce. So they either reduce everything to one or they reduce everything to many. Um, and as a result, they set up binaries and they set up reductionisms. And, and so Christianity isn't just more right than a non-Christian, it's richer. It's, uh, it's more nuanced. It is so different than what most non-Christians would think. If you, if you go out and say, I wanna show you that the reason, I'd like to recommend Christianity because actually I believe that your view is too simplistic, too one-dimensional. Um, it, it leaves out the richness of what's actually out there. And the way, and here's the last thing I'll say, the way Bofink would say is to be a Christian with a Christian worldview enables you to be a whole person that unites your heart and your head. Because the traditional person, a secular person will say, well, all moral values are relative. That's what they'll say. If you push them, they say, well, of course, all moral values are relative. But then the way in which they live is they know that's not true. And they act, they do believe in moral absolutes and they live that way. Bavink would, would point that out and not just say, ha, I got you. <laughs> what, he, what he would say there is, do you not see that you have a worldview that doesn't allow you to be a whole person? It's splitting you because you can't not know that there are moral absolutes and yet your worldview doesn't account for it. So why not recognize that? So say, to say Christianity is right and everybody else is wrong is pretty harsh, it's true. But to say Christianity is more rich and nuanced in its understanding of reality and enables you to be a whole person, enables you to unite heart and head, that's how Bobbing talks about the Christian worldview. I've never seen anybody else talk like that. I would say in the Dutch Calvinist tradition, it's much more intellectual, it's much more, uh, it doesn't recognize common grace, it's much more uh, kind of take no prisoner, uh, prisoners. And of course, the Scottish common sense realism, I think is actually very naive about the fallenness of, of human reason. So Bavink is the best one I've seen. And I do think that not just his little books on worldview, but the way he fleshes it out in philosophy of revelation and the way he fleshes out in his essays, those essays are remarkable. Uh, he talks about social inequality. He talks about, he talks about science. And I, I guess, uh, forgive me for saying this, to me, he's a better Kuiper than Kuiper. And I don't believe that most Americans understand Bob Bobbing's like the guy that we don't know about. We've, we've grown up on Kuiper, but I think Kuiper in many ways is, is himself a little too much of a political animal. And Bobbing to me was, a, was, a, was really a seeker after truth, um, very patient, a true intellectual. So for all those reasons, and I'm really just, I wouldn't have known this eight months ago, but it's because of all the good work that people like Gray and uh, the, you know, I'm calling the, Bo the Bovink Mafia, the people out there who are writing introductions and translating stuff. 
I think it's really going to help American evangelicalism tremendously. So there's my speech. And um, Jay, where do we go from here? Does, does you just want Gray to well, respond I, to that? or what? I was wondering, as a member of the Bob Inc. Mafia, if Gray could, could respond right. and also maybe respond with a little bit on how Bob Inc., how did Bob Inc. come to this place where he's so respected by Tim Keller? How, <laughs> background that, that made him the right mix. Yeah, thanks so much. I think uh, Tim Keller's assessment there was exactly right. I do think that Bob Inc. is the better Kuiper. I do think that his philosophy is more performative and patient rather than polemical. I think that's what Tim was getting at there. But let me just say a, a few things about Bob Inc. here in case that there are listeners here who don't know yet who Bob Inc. is. Bavink, as, as Tim said, was a contemporary of Kuiper, was a first-generation Dutch neo-Calvinist theologian, which meant that with Abraham Kuiper, he argued that Christianity is a robust theology, but it also makes sense of reality. If there is a Christian world and life view that uh, uh, the Bible and, and biblical theology offers, rather than just a confessional theology, he argues that there is a culture-embracing world and life view there. His dates were 1854, 1921. He was a pastor, but after he became a pastor uh, and after he did his PhD at Leiden University, he was a professor at the Theological University of Kampen and also at the Free University of Amsterdam along with Kuiper. Uh, and I think there are just three aspects here that make Bavink incredibly appealing for not just American evangelicals, but I think uh, our global faith here, uh, Christianity as a global faith, and also that makes him appealing to someone like uh, Dr. Tim Keller, right? So. Uh, Here's three things I would say about him, and I'll just be quite brief about this. First is that Bavink, I think, mixes two things that don't normally go together, that he's both orthodox and modern, right? This is something that that I and, and Corey Brock and James Eglinton uh, have, have really tried to emphasize in our own scholarship on him. You know, oftentimes people say that if you're more orthodox, right, you, you believe in classical Christianity, you can't be modern. You can't be engaged with modern culture. You're going to be separationistic. You're going to be antithetical against modern philosophy, modern psychology, and all that. Or if you're modern, right, you're going to disavow the Christian faith because we're modern people after all. God is dead. We can't go back to the ancient faith. But Bavink unnaturally, perhaps, combines these two things. He wants to use classical Christian theology. He's very much rooted in the scriptures. He uses ancient, uh, medieval, reformed theology. Uh, in a very eclectic and fruitful manner. But at the same time, you see him using as well Immanuel Kant. He takes the term worldview from there, along with Kuiper, right? He uses Friedrich Schleiermacher's work. And so he shows that there's no tension inherently between being a robust, faithful Christian on the one hand, and at the same time being engaged in modern culture on the other, right? You can actually be also engaged in social activism in the way that Bavink was fighting for the woman's right to vote, thinking really hard about the woman's life in contemporary society and the changes in modern modern life. So again, lots of people have said Bavink must be inconsistent because he, he can't seem to uh, want to hold on to orthodoxy and modernity together, but he does. Second thing I want to say, and this is very much related to what Tim had mentioned as well, is that grace restores nature is a motif in Bavink's thought that God's grace the gospel is only against sin and not against nature and culture as such, right? Which means that the gospel can come to any culture and take what's good from it, present it as a home where these cultural insights, these cultural inclinations, habits, whatever it might be, uh, uh, that it would, it would actually fit better with Christianity as, as a foundation for it. 
there's a whole host of theology there, antithesis, common grace, like Tim had said, that everybody's made in the image of God and everybody is connected to God's reality, whether they like it or not, by virtue of God's common grace. So no matter who we're encountering, we don't have to be immediately suspicious. We can say because this person is made in the image of God, this person enjoys common grace, there will be something about the goodness of God that we're going to see in this person. And Christians can appreciate that. Don't be afraid of that. I think finally as well, uh, what, what Tim had mentioned there about the Trinity being the foundation of the Christian worldview, uh, Bavink really talks about an organic worldview, right? In other words, if you have the Trinity in the back of reality, that God is, yes, a simple, undivided, one God, but at the same time, this God exists in one in essence, but three in persons, there's going to be reflections of this Trinitarian God in creation. You're going to see a complexity in creation that you otherwise wouldn't see if you didn't have the Trinity as your starting point. You're going to see the head and the heart, like Tim mentioned, uh, as going together. You're going to see the physical and the, and, the, and the spiritual going together. You're going to see individual responsibility and social responsibility going together. There's no need to pit one against the other. And so you can be for a biblical sense of social justice and at the same time, a biblical sense of individual responsibility, right? And stewardship and, and master, right? That's what humanity is. And so Christianity offers this understanding of reality that is comprised of unities and diversities, precisely because in the back of everything, there is God who is the ultimate unity and diversity. But again, non-Christian worldviews would say everything is just reducible to the physical or everything is reducible to the spiritual as you might have in an animistic, spiritualistic religion. But Christianity says, no, there's a complex reality here. We got to hold things that look like they might be in tension, according to our own autonomous reasoning, together, because God himself has created a very rich creation. So go ahead, Tim. Uh, by the way, if, if you all have, haven't read Tim Keller's Justice article, especially the fourth one, footnote three on Bavink, that's where he discusses a lot of this. Go ahead. Yes, I was going to actually... Thank you for bringing that up because Jay actually asked me to say something about how Bavink helped me uh, as I was writing that series on justice. He actually helped me all the way through. Uh, and um, but here you've already alluded to it, Gray. Um, the um, what Bavink is shows is that because the, every Christian worldview has to identify something inside the created world as being what's really wrong with everything and usually something inside the creative world that's gonna fix everything. So we would call that, it, it demonizes some part of reality that's, that's good because God created it. And it idolizes some part of reality that's fallen because of sin. Whereas of course the Christian worldview says what's really wrong with the world is sin and what's really gonna solve it is grace. But all non-Christian worldviews have to reduce uh, because they gotta find this one operating principle that explains everything and they reduce things because this is what's going to fix it and this is what's not going to fix it. Now, when it comes to justice, what we are is we are locked, at least in America, between a kind of enlightenment individualism, going back to the, the you know, the especially the, the Scottish and the British enlightenment, in which everything is a matter of individual choice. And so if you're poor, it's your fault. You just haven't been responsible. And of course, you go to the other extreme, you've got Marxism, and Marxism tries to explain everything involving in chapter five of philosophy of revelation, I think is chapter five, takes Marxism on as another reductionistic worldview that says, basically, if you're poor, it's never your fault. It's just social forces have done it. You go to the Bible 
you not only in the in the Old Testament, you you actually see uh, Proverbs Proverbs ten eleven and twelve keeps saying that if you work hard, you won't be poor. And so that sounds very Republican, Tory. It sounds very uh, uh, Enlightenment. You know, it's all a matter of your choice. Then suddenly you get to Proverbs thirteen, and Proverbs thirteen, there's a verse that says, "The field of the poor is filled with grain, but injustice sweeps it away." So here's a poor person who's worked hard, they've planted, they've chosen, they've done everything, and injustice takes it away. And they, they worked hard and it's, it's gone because of structural injustice. And so then you get to the New Testament and you get the Trinity and suddenly say, oh, so that's why we can have this complexity. Because the real problem is not, a, is not capitalism and the real solution is not the state. And the real problem is not the state, which of course is the right wing approach. And all we need is like no government and everybody out there just you know, exercising their freedom. Christianity is just too nuanced for that. The, 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 the Trinity is too nuanced for that. It, it brings it in a complexity that nobody else can do. And so the entirety of my justice series, go ahead, Gray, um, was undergirded by what I was learning from Bavink, though at a certain place, one or two places, I actually have to, you know, you know give him credit. You're going to say something, Gray? Yeah, that's fantastic. I think what really came out in your justice articles is Christopher Watkins' concept of diagonalization, right? Christopher Watkins, we're actually having him on the DC podcast right after this uh, open house, and we're looking forward to conversing with him on it. We also assign his texts in our classes, but he talks about how Christianity is not just a middle way, as if it's just a combination of left and right, a combination of different philosophies, an amalgamation almost, right? But that Christianity diagonalizes, you know, it, it offers a subversive fulfillment of two alternatives. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that? Because you mentioned diagonalization a couple of times in your articles as well, and how that is rooted again, I think, in Bobbing's own thought. It is. Um, and by the way, subversive fulfillment or contradictive fulfillment is actually something that comes out of Bobbing's nephew, Johannes you know, J.H. Bobbing, who was a, a career missionary. Yes. Um, and uh, what his understanding is that you don't, say to other religions or to, to non-Christian philosophies, simple, something as simple as you're wrong and we're right. Instead, what you do is you find the best aspirations inside that faith or that religion, because common grace, you assume there's something there. And then basically what you say is you're right to want this, but you're looking for it in the wrong place. That's subversive fulfillment. The perfect example of subversive fulfillment, and this is both Herman Bavink and Johannes Bavink is, uh, to me, is 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul says, now this is a paraphrase, Paul says that the Greeks want wisdom and the Jews want power. That, you know, in other words, the Greeks are contemplatives and the Jews are pragmatists. Uh, the Greeks want philosophy and the Jews want, uh, they, they want savoir faire, they want to get, get it done. And the cross confronts both cultural narratives. It's foolishness to the Greeks and weakness to the Jews. Because a crucified savior, is, he's not a philosopher and he's not a general, it's, it's foolishness. See, foolishness and weakness are two different ways the cross offends the, the, um, the, the cultural narrative because they're two different cultural narratives. But then Paul turns around and says, but to the Jews and the Greeks that are being saved, they see that the cross is the true wisdom and the true power of God. Uh, they were looking for power in the wrong place. They were looking for wisdom in the wrong place. That's a verse of fulfillment. You're, 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 on the one hand, you're contradicting 
uh, I think Bob Mick actually talked about contradictive fulfillment, which is a really interesting term. I don't know what that would be in Dutch, but you would know, great. But um, it basically is saying the cross contradicts and yet fulfills. It doesn't just say you're wrong. It contradicts and fulfills. That's so Bavinkian. And uh, that's what I was trying to do in the articles. Any thoughts, Greg? Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I think, you know, what the two Bavinks, not the two Boving theory, but Johan Boving <laughs> and Hermann Boving, definitely don't want the two Boving theory here. Um, <laughs> But Johann Boving and Hermann Boving, I think, have a really robust understanding of the theology of borrowed capital as well, right? Mm-hmm. That whatever insights we have, we actually borrow them from the Christian worldview, that, that God has created things in such a way where even if you disbelieve God, you're still standing on him in particular ways. And I think your Justice articles as well bring out the fact that Western society is a very post-Christian society, that a lot of the intuitions that we take for granted it's oftentimes mixed up with universal laws of nature or their own uh, common sense intuitions. And you've already critiqued common sense well, but actually so much of what we take for granted, especially in the West, is actually an inheritance of a, a post-Christian reality that, that because of their Christian past and of the, the prevalence of scriptural influence, right? They take for granted things like tolerance and forgiveness of freedom and equality and things like that. Can you maybe say a little bit more about that as well and how that's rooted even in the, the Bavinkian emphasis you talked about? Yeah, now, uh, even though he may not know anything about him, I recently, a person who actually is doing this kind of work in his field is Christian Smith, who's a sociologist. Now, I have no idea, my guess is, unless he's really up on top of things, he probably doesn't know Bavink very well because so much of Bavink stuff is now getting available and I doubt he knows Dutch. He knows a lot of things, but. Um, nevertheless, you can. I actually quoted him um, in my second last article in the Justice series. What I did was I actually had to write it down because I heard a podcast. Um, he was on a podcast with an atheist and a very emotionally healthy atheist, a fine guy. But the atheist, um, uh, what, what Christian Smith was trying to say is he worries very much that um, atheism, secular atheism, doesn't have a good grounding for morality. So he does that home. So this very emotionally healthy atheist says, he's a young guy, and he actually, it's, it's a, it's a, he's very congenial. And he says, well, I was talking to my girlfriend about this. I, I, I told you what, what Christian Smith said. And he said, he says, I think, I actually just think that um, human rights and um, the dignity of all human beings is just common sense. You don't need to believe in God. It's just common sense. Everybody knows this. And, um, and uh, I know that I want to be treated with dignity, so I would just assume that everybody else wants to be treated with dignity, and so why do I need religion? And Christian Smith, it's, I, I, I transcribed this in the article, uh, in the second, my second last article. Christian Smith says, um, well, I don't have it all in there, but Christian Smith tries to say, and, you know, Gray, you're from, you know, you're from Asia, from a different part of the world. He says, the idea that all human beings are equal and human rights, that's a Western idea. He says it is not self-evident around the world at all. He said it came from centuries of biblical teaching. And he says uh, it is not common. First of all, he says the idea of human rights and human dignity, first of all, it's not self-evident. Number two, it's not provable. Science does not prove everybody's equal. If anything, science shows that people are not equal. And therefore, if you believe it, it's come not from Eastern or from other places. It came from the Western tradition. It came from the Bible. And he says, what I'm worried about is as religion continues to decline, 
What are you going to say to your grandchildren when they say, oh, I care about my not suffering, but why should I care about anybody else not suffering? What will you say as an atheist to that? Why should I care about people who are suffering? I care about my not suffering. Why should I? And you know, the, it, he, the, the guy got silent. And Christian, what Christian Smith was doing, that is, I think, the way Bobbing would argue. Absolutely. He's really trying, trying to say, um, you actually believe in something that your own worldview can't account for. And, 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 and what Christian Smith was trying to, trying to say is what you're really looking for actually is available in, the, in Christianity, and it's really not available in your own worldview. So right. there, there are people out there actually doing that, even though I don't think um, they probably understand Bob Inc. So. Yeah, right. And exactly right. And I think Christian Smith in his own way was doing that subversive fulfillment with regard to the secularist context. And here's why I think he's absolutely right to do that. I, I do completely agree that the idea of individual rights, equality of all is definitely a Western idea rooted in scriptural principles. And I definitely think that's something that Asia continues to wrestle with. You know, part of the ministry that we've been doing here uh, at Covenant City Church, at our church here, which is also a city to city church plant, Asia Pacific, by the way, wow. with uh, Pastor Tazar, is, um, is, is most, of the, most of the pastoral cases has to do with family. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, the presupposition of this culture is that you don't really have individual rights, nor do you have the ability or the right to express your authenticity or freedom. But rather, your responsibility is just for the good of the clan, the good of the family, the good of your race, even. So intermarriage issues are definitely prevalent here. Um, racial tensions, family dynamics. I think people definitely have a more dynastic understanding of the family where when you get married you're not actually creating a new family you're expanding a single family and there's a, there's a huge shame honor thing but i think what we, be, we could be tempted to do if we're you know reading mainly the western theological tradition is simply to say well we got to get rid of all that yeah and western society is just better but i think what bovink allows us to do is to say hey both western society and asian society are an antithesis against christianity but at the same time uh, there's going to be insights, even from the East, even if they're not a post-Christian society, they didn't stand on a Christian history, that would inevitably echo something about the truth of God's reality, right? There's something about the Trinity, something about, about, about the image of God in us because of common grace. And again, Boving, therefore, doesn't just allow us to polemicize and prefer one culture over another because that culture is just the natural common sense or whatever, but diagonalizes both. You're going to no. say something as well? Yeah. No, no, I was going to say... Do you see how important that is for us right now? The, yes. the Christian idea is willing to both critique and at the same time appreciate both yes. the Asian traditional uh, non-individualistic non culture and the Western individualistic culture. And I think it's not that hard to do. I think most people realize the Asian culture can make an idol out of the family and it can crush individual, the individual. On the other hand, the, the Western idea of the individual, you look in your heart and you decide what is right for you and what you want to do, and then you have to go out there and accomplish it, that brings an enormous amount of pressure um, on you because now I've got to accomplish it. That's at least as performative, if not more performative, than the Asian idea that basically, as long as my parents are happy with me, I'll feel good about myself. Well, that can be stifling, but so can the West, Western view. And Christianity comes along and says, actually, your identity is grounded in Christ, it's grounded in what Christ's performance has been. And that that whole that gives you a place to be, both appreciate but not actually prefer any one culture. Not to say that one every culture has fallen, every culture's got common grace. 
it's so different because if you don't have the Christian perspective, you're actually going to take one culture's position to, to trash another culture. There's no other place to go. That's, that also comes out, I know, in philosophy of revelation where Bavink almost, almost predicts German nationalism and fascism. Where is that gray? There's a place. Christian, yeah. Christian worldview chapter three and the last two chapters of philosophy of revelation. Yeah. And, go ahead. Yeah, he definitely did. He actually argued that if you got rid of transcendence laws of morality and biblical revelation, then you're going to say that morality has to come from humanity. Yeah. But then humanity is too generic. You have to ask the more concrete question, which humanity and whose yeah. history should you derive your laws of nature from? And ultimately, German culture became the, uh, the forerunner for that. German culture is going to be adjudicating between all the other cultures. Yeah, you're going to say something as well. No, you're going to have to. You're going to make an eye out of some culture. Yeah, if, exactly. If you don't have a God and a Christian worldview by which you can both appreciate and judge every culture, then you're going to make some culture the standard, and that's racism. That's Absolutely. And, and I no think the reason why Bavink, therefore, is so important, and especially in an international globalizing context, is that it allows for patient apologetics and evangelism without colonialization. Yeah. Right. And I think, therefore, we can be patient every time we, we listen to uh, someone who's completely from a different culture. We're always tempted to say, well, that's just alien. I'm not for that. Christianity is against that. But then suddenly, if you have the kind of antithesis, common grace, image of God dynamic involving, you can say there's going to be something about this person that despite himself, despite herself, something about the image of God will be reflected in this person. So there's patience there. And I think especially in a context like D.C., New York, Jakarta, international cities where it's a melting pot, you need that kind of faith or else you're just going to be reasserting your own preferences rather than the truth of the complex gospel. This is pretty exciting, actually. It is. This is very exciting. It's it very exciting. Indeed. Well, with, with Bavink being, um, being a, a person that we can embrace to deal with the, the problem of colonialization and theology, um, that's a good, that's a profound statement and, and a helpful statement. I also want to say to those listening, whenever you registered, you got a link to Dr. Sutanto's lecture that he gave at Washington, D.C., I believe. Um, and Gray, I thought, you know, when you, when you spoke in that lecture about Bobbing's method, his patience, uh, his descriptive method, um, it does seem to me in the Reformed community, we lost some of that generosity that we, we rush into critique of epistemology before we listen. And also you emphasize that Bobbing had this confidence that if you are patient, you can get a deliverance. It's not the same as a common sense realist type deliverance, but you'll get some deliverance from the creation if you're patient, because God is, you know, this came from the mind of God and there, there is something there. Um, so that's something I think would be helpful for us to explore in our classes more how can we have a corrective from Bobbing in our methodology so that we're not so brittle in our critique, in our apologetic, particularly in the Reformed community, and we are more patient and, and, um, and for you to tie that the, uh, to the problem of colonization, I think, is, is significant. So much here. I want to thank um, especially Tim and Gray for joining us. Thank you, Scott, for, for hosting us. It's been a lot of fun to do this in partnership with D.C., and the good thing is um, – this partnership will continue, uh, God willing, in the spring with Gray teaching for us in apologetics, with Tim teaching his course on Christian life and secular culture. And so at this point in our time, um, we're going to allow Dr. Keller to, to log off and, and go read another book in full before he goes to bed. <laughs> um, and, um, 
And we're going to pivot. And you're going to find in the chat uh, two links. You, you have a link to RTS New York City, and you have a link to RTS Washington, D.C. Um, go to the RTS New York City link if you want to learn more about city ministry program that Tim mentioned. If you've already been to seminary or you're just looking for practical training, I can speak to that and connect you with those folks. Um, we'll also speak there about our Master of Arts Biblical Studies program for people in the New York City and Metro New York area. And go to uh, D.C. to learn about the various programs uh, that they have. So thank you guys for being with us. Um, Scott, you want to say anything before we sign off? Yeah, it's great having this kind of conversation. And if this is the kind of conversation that really kind of you know, tickles your interest, if it, if it kind of hits that need that uh, you may not have known you had, um, we'd love to invite you to consider one of our campuses, particularly a campus that's serving in an international city like New York City or Washington, D.C., where these conversations are being had with you know, quite diverse uh, student bodies uh, serving a diversity of churches. It's, it's an honor to be a part of that kind of thing. And I think that um, if you have the, the ability and we'd like to help you, you know, find a way to do it, um, we'd love to have you be a part of that conversation. So thanks for joining us tonight and look forward to seeing you in the breakouts. Again, if you haven't yet, uh, copy and paste those, uh, those Zoom links so that you can meet us over in the breakouts that are be opening up just as we close off. With that said, thank you, Dr. Keller. Thank you, Dr. Sutanto. And good night, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.